0: Last reading is from John chapter one, and I'm going to read the first fourteen verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or the will of men, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, I think this is probably one of my favorite portions in the whole of the Scripture, and I I love uh, this portion of God's Word, and um, I really want to just try and say four things to you this morning, and I hope that you'll take these away uh, with you as you go on your leave and uh, enjoy Christmas with your family. It's a wonderful time uh, to reflect about life and to think about what matters most, uh, what matters most is family and community and the, the gift of people that God has given to us. And I guess it's also time to remember that there are those that are not fortunate to have families that love them. And there are people that are particularly lonely at this time of year. And so it, it's always good to remember, uh, as we're enjoying wonderful times with our own friends and family, those that um, don't enjoy those things that we do. I'm sure you will agree that what we've just experienced is a very beautiful telling of the gospel story, and I trust as you were listening to the readings and the carols that we've sung, you heard the thread of the gospel, the good news, that um, Jesus came and was born and lived a perfect life that set us free from all sin and all that holds us back from enjoying a relationship with God. Um, But I want to say, like I said, four things out of this portion, but I'd like to start by saying this. I don't know if you've noticed in the last number of years that our increasingly secular uh, environment, the world in which we're growing up, is increasingly hostile towards Christianity. And so I was recently um, in Chicago, and once again there was the debate in America about whether we should even call Christmas, Christmas. Let's just call it holiday season. And so there was this move in America, let's take Christ out of Christmas and just call it holidays. There's an increasingly growing pressure from secular humanists that we are not allowed anymore to just celebrate as Christians in the world, which has largely been shaped by Christianity, the good thing that God has done through His Son. And so over the years there have been many objections to Christianity. For example, some have said this, how can anyone believe that one man's death on the cross takes away the sin of the world? And uh, the technical word for that is atonement. People have said we don't believe that someone can atone for our sin and take our sin away. Uh, others have stumbled over the resurrection. How can it possibly be that Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead? The idea that he rose from the dead in a glorified body is, is preposterous. It's impossible. Surely his body was stolen. Surely He fainted on the cross. Surely He was just unconscious in the tomb and He was resuscitated somehow. And uh, that's why Christians believe that He was resurrected from the dead. Or what about the virgin birth? That's biologically impossible. How can that be? What about the miracles that Christians claim? Jesus healing people. Surely that's preposterous too. Uh, What about Him walking on water? (laughs) Feeding 5,000 people. Raising the Dead, surely these stories are fantasy. They are just fantastical imaginations of people. Well, I would put it to you this morning that perhaps the greatest challenge that we face as Christians and uh, the greatest difficulty that people have with Christianity doesn't lie in the things that I've just told you, but lies in what we have just celebrating this morning that God would come as a baby. Surely that is the most fantastical of everything. That God, the great God of the universe, would come in the form of of a baby, be born to human parents, and all that, the the, the force of, of the universe that created everything, would confine himself to the form of a babe. Surely this is the most outrageous claim of the Christian faith. And so, I want to say to you that little phrase that we read this morning, that Jesus came full of grace and full of truth, that Jesus was God-made man. This is the most extraordinary claim of the Christian faith. And and that's what we celebrate this morning. And I'd like to bring that back to your attention uh, as, as believers. Jesus didn't lose his deity as he dwelt among us. He was truly God, fully God, as much as he was human. And we see these profound mysteries being um, set before our eyes this morning. The mystery of the Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the second, that the Godhead and man came together in the person of a baby. That's the most profound truth that we believe as Christians. The Word became flesh. As Tim shared with us last week, little Nathan Let's just reflect on that again. Jesus came like a little Nathan, (laughs) was fed like a baby, was changed like a baby, was loved by a mother and a father. He made baby noises. He did what babies do. needed to be fed and changed. And uh, I know what an incredible privilege that is as a father to see your son grow from a baby to become... A man And there's, there's no illusion in the, the biblical story. This is the reality, and the more that you think about it, the more staggering it really is. <laughs> there's nothing more outrageous in all of fiction than the claim of Christians that Jesus came, fully God, fully a man, and lived and was born as a baby. And I want to say to you, I believe this really is the real stumbling block for many to accept Christianity. This is where Jews and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and all those that have had historical objections that I've mentioned already, this is where they stumble. It's because of an inadequate belief or misbelief about their incarnation that all these other objections to Christianity find their roots. And when we truly, fully understand what it means that God came and dwelt among us, everything else, every other objection fades into insignificance. If Jesus really was the eternal Word of God, through whom all things were made, Hebrews 1, 2, then any act of creative power in Him coming into the world and leaving the world and, and doing miracles and being raised from the dead are not strange at all. Why? Because He is the, the author of every good thing. He is the creator of everything that we see. And once we understand that Jesus was fully divine... It becomes unreasonable to find difficulty with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, with the miracles that he did. And so this profound mystery of the Incarnation makes sense of every claim of the New Testament. And do you notice this in the readings that we read this morning? Both in the Gospel of Matthew and of Luke, they tell the detail of of Jesus coming into the world that he was born in an outbuilding of a small hotel somewhere in an obscure village that was part of the Roman Empire. But the reason that the the Gospels tell this story, the details are slightly different in in some of the Gospels, but what the Gospels are most concerned about us getting is the identity of the baby. That's what the Gospel wants us to get. And so there's two simple things that I'd like to enlarge into four points this morning. And I've been going for five minutes. So I'll go another 10 minutes. Is that okay? And then we're going to enjoy some refreshments together. But the baby born in the stable, the Bible says, was God. The Bible specifically says three times in the first three chapters of John's Gospel that the baby born in the stable was the Son of God. Not a son but the Son of God. And John makes it very clear when he uses this phrase, the only begotten Son, the one and only Son of God. And uh, people have, over centuries, have thought about that phrase, the Son of God. And what does that mean? Uh, Does that phrase mean that Jesus is God's Son in the sense that there's more than one Son? Is, Is Christianity polytheistic? Does it you know, that's what the Jews and, 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 and Muslims say, that Christianity is polytheistic. It's more than one part of the Godhead. Does this uh, phrase imply that Jesus is a, a super son, in, all in a class of himself, but he's not divine like the Father? Well, that's what Christadelphians believe. Uh, in early church history, there's a group of believers called Arians, and they believed that Jesus was like a superhuman, but he wasn't God. He was just a superhuman. Or is that right? Well, if you read John's gospel carefully, you can see that all these objections, John carefully deals with every single one of them. And it seems that John was writing in particular for, for, for those that were from a Jewish and, and Greek background. And so he knows these objections that they have, and he deals with them systematically. And he, and he writes later in, the, in John 20, 31, that he did all this, he wrote all of this down, that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, have life in His name. That's what he says at the end of his gospel. That's why he's written all of this down, so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, and that we might have life in His name. And so, he uses this phrase, The Son of God. I don't know if you know this, but Greek mythology spoke about many sons of God, who were supermen born to uh, between a union of gods and and human woman, and so there were these superhuman sons of gods that uh, Greek mythology speaks of. But none of these expressions of this phrase convey personal deity that God becomes a man. And Jesus, he wanted to make it clear when he used this that he was not using it in, in any of the ways that I've um, used so far. He, he wants to make it very clear, John does, that when he says Jesus is the Son of God, he's, ta- he's talking about deities, he's talking about God becoming a human. And that's why this portion I read this morning is so brilliant and so um, carefully constructed by John. Uh, in the Old Testament, God's Word when the phrase of, uh, is used, God's Word, it's talking about His creative power. It's talking about His power in action, that through His Word, He created everything. And so, um, for example, Genesis 1-3, God says, let there be light. We know it says there was light, and everything was created out of the creative Word of God. Psalm 33, by the Word of the Lord, all the heavens were made. He spoke, and it came into being. And so, this is the, the, the Hebrew understanding, God, has His Word has creative power, and as He speaks, things come into being. And this is why it's so amazing that John says, the babe in the manger was the creative Word of God, made flesh. The baby in the stable was fully God. Secondly, the baby in the stable was also God made man. I love this phrase, the Word became flesh. The Word became a real human baby. And, um, you know, John is a very sharp man. He was writing predominantly to Greeks. And I don't know if you know that uh, one of the famous Greek uh, thinking philosophies was Stoicism. Do you know what Stoicism is? Stoicism is a view on life that you don't express your emotions uh, very much because... Suffering comes to you when you feel very passionately about something or you get disappointed very deeply. That's when you suffer. So the Stoics believed that you don't express emotion very much in your life and in that way you can get through life without feeling much pain. Yeah? That's why we use the phrase, He's very stoic. What does that mean? He doesn't express his emotions. He just kind of walks through life without much of a smile on his face, just getting by. That's what it means to be stoical. All right? And the Stoics also believed that there was a creative um, uh, creator to the universe, but that he was impersonal, that he didn't really care. He had made, he made the universe and he had kind of stepped back from the universe. He wasn't involved, and they called this creator the Logos, the logic of the universe, Logos. Can you see how brilliant John is? He says, he's addressing Greek people, he says, In the beginning was the Logos, and they would have understood exactly what he was meaning. This creative creator of all of the universe in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos became man, flesh, and the Logos dwelt amongst us. Man, he's John is so sharp. He's taking on the philosophy of the day and He's saying, I'm telling you, there is a Creator and He has come and He's been born as a baby in a manger and the Word, the Creator, the Logos has become flesh and the flesh, He has dwelt amongst us. It's incredible. And so, it's not that God came and suddenly was minus some of his deity when he became a man it was now he was learning what it was like to be a man and that's what tim so wonderfully shared with us last week he knows us in our suffering he knows us in every pain that we walk through he knows us in our joy he knows us in every element of our lives because he has lived as one of us god made man he knew what it was like to be tempted. He, he couldn't avoid being tempted by the devil, but he overcame every temptation, and the perfection of his human life was, a ch- was, was shown in how he overcame the devil. And this is what Hebrews, tell us, Hebrews, Hebrews um, tells us, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself has suffered when tempted, and he is able to help those who are being tempted. Isn't that comfort to you? It's great comfort to me. Whenever I feel tempted to give up, to despair, I know there is one who is my advocate, Jesus, who has also felt tempted to give up and despair, and yet he remained faithful in all things. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace. Man, you need grace for your life. You need mercy for your life. Draw close this Christmas time. Draw close to the baby in the manger. Worship God-made man. You see, it is a mystery. (laughs) And what I'm saying to you is unfathomable. It's, It's really hard to get your mind around it. And that's why I love Charles Wesley. I grew up a Methodist. He had this very famous hymn, and you probably know this phrase. It says, Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. Isn't that brilliant? No, you don't think so. <laughs> it is absolutely brilliant. That is what the incarnation is. Our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. So thirdly, I'd just like to look at this. How do we understand the meaning of the incarnation? How, do we, how, are, we, how, how are we to think about it? Um, well, the New Testament encourages us to worship to worship God for the love that He's shown to us in coming to us. It's a great act of love, isn't it? It's a, it's a selfless act. It's, a, it's an act of humility. It's an act of condescension that God would come and dwell amongst us. And this is what Philippians says so beautifully. I'll just read it to you. Philippians 2, four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this man amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord." to the glory of God the Father. All of this, all of this was for our salvation. Uh, J.R. Packer, a writer that I love, he says this, the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place in the sequence of steps down that led the Son of God to the cross at Calvary, and we do not understand it until we see it in this context. Clive wonderfully prayed at the beginning. Let us remember where this fits in. This is part of the steps, the first steps that led Christ to the cross at Calvary, that you and I might be set free from all that holds us back. Uh, I love 2 Corinthians 8. It puts it another way. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. It's not just talking about money. It's talking about the richness that God gives us in every area of our life, why? Because Christ became poor. laid aside the riches of His glory that we might enjoy riches now in every way on earth. Well, what does it mean that Jesus became poor? It simply means He laid aside His glory, that He voluntarily restrained His power, that He accepted hardship and isolation, misunderstanding and ultimately death, that we might be free. And so... In the story of Christmas, there's hope for humanity, isn't there? There's a hope for you, hope for me. There's hope of peace with God, hope of redemption. There's hope of glory that is still to come. All because Jesus chose to become poor for our sake. And that's the most wonderful story that you and I will ever hear. Lastly then, how should we live? Living daily as Jesus did. I, I, love, I love this story. Uh, time of the year. And people often talk about the Christmas spirit, isn't it? Let's get into the Christmas spirit. Well, I think we can use that in a kind of glib way, but really it can carry an incredible weight of meaning for us. It should mean, in terms of what I've just said, it should mean that we live our lives to reproduce the same spirit of Christ in our community like Jesus did. That's the spirit of Christmas who for our sake became poor. That's what we are to reproduce if we're to live, with, to live like Jesus. That same Spirit. Uh, I've said this before, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, one of my favorite um, stories. And he, what does is, what is, uh, Scrooge end up saying? We should carry the Spirit of Christmas in our hearts every day of the year. I don't know about you, that's a great challenge to me. Uh, many Christians, and I include myself, we live more like the believers. In the parable of the Good Samaritan. We might see people's needs, we might see people's cry all around us, but after we see it, we kind of just pass on by and walk and look the other way. Perhaps we pray for them, but in the end we avert our eyes and we we go where we don't see that stuff. See? I'm more and more convinced that's not the true spirit of Christ. That's why I so love the story of Charles Dickens, of Scrooge. This miserly man transformed into a generous man who lived for other people. So what is the true spirit of Christ? What is the true spirit of Christmas? Well, is it not to help to satisfy people's needs once we have seen them? Is it not to genuinely do that without looking the other way? I I speak to you as I speak to myself living in London, for far too many of us as Christians, our sole ambition seems to be limited to be building a nice middle-class Christian life, making nice middle-class Christian friends, bringing up our children in a nice middle-class Christian way, and leaving out any subsection of the community that we don't want to engage with. Well, I want to put it to you, and I I know I always do this. I'm not trying to make any enemies here. You're my friends. But I, I don't think that kind of snobbery belongs in the church of Christ. And essentially it is snobbery. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christmas, is found in people who want to be like Jesus, who want to be Christ followers. I don't even feel comfortable using the word Christian anymore, because it doesn't imply that you are a Christ follower. You can be a Christian in the fact that you're not a Muslim, or not a Jew, and not a secular humanist. It doesn't mean you're a Christ follower. I want to be a Christ follower. I want to lead a church full of Christ followers that are following Jesus with all of their hearts, with every passion that they can muster, to see His kingdom come on earth. That's the kind of church I want to be involved in. Christ followers, giving themselves up for other people, living on behalf of others, of the poor seeing their lives spent giving themselves away to enrich other people. That is the spirit of Jesus. That is the spirit of Christmas. And I'm learning this. That means that we give our time and our energy, not just to our friends. I mean, our friends give us energy and time back, don't they? That's why we like to hang out with them. Jesus says... Pray for those that don't give energy back to you. What is is the word Jesus uses? Your enemies. I'm learning this. Who's, Who's my enemy? My enemy is the person I least want to have coffee with. That's my enemy. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Man, this is the spirit of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christ follower. For our sake, although he was rich, he became poor, that through His poverty we might become rich. And Philippians, i finish with this. It says we are to have the same attitude as Jesus. I'm overwhelmed every time I read that phrase. The same attitude as Jesus. That's what we are to have, by the power of the Holy Spirit living with us. And I trust this Christmas that you will continue to enlarge your heart to all that Jesus has for you. All that Jesus wants to do through you into the community. And that in the new year, we're going to see God do amazing, amazing things through us as a local church to radically change the communities in which we live as we live with the same spirit with which Christ lived, becoming poor so that others might become rich. God bless you. Have an amazing time over Christmas. Enjoy every celebration. And let's ask God to do these things inside of us by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen?